Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, are we falling for the myth of the middle? The sham of middle class and middle management? How the ego divides and conquers. We keep hearing about the need to rebuild the middle class, and middle class is how we Americans like to see ourselves. We are proud that we're not just workers. We're better than that. We're middle class. This appeals to our egos. Now here's another one. Many of us are aiming to become middle management. We don't want to be just workers. We want to be a step up to have status. Why are these statuses a scam? Because middle class and middle management are the labels we are given so we don't get pissed, join our peers, and rebel. These, yeah. Yeah. yeah! Yeah! These titles appeal to our egos and block our oneness. What is middle class? Is middle class, is middle class income really midway between poor and billionaire? Is middle management a position of power, or is it a way to deprive us of unions and overtime while we haven't got nearly the power or security that those at the top give themselves? Today we interview two women who will talk with Beth about the unreality of the middle and how ego is blocking our power. Now, here is Beth. Welcome. Well, I think we're going to have great fun today. Today we have on Chris Reese and Lynn Hillocks. Hi! Hi! Hi, Hi. Hi Beth. But unfortunately, of course, you know, you have to wait until we've done the news, or fortunately, because, you know, you will laugh and cry with us uh, during the news. And I just want to say something. I am so steamed up about this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Just this topic, Beth? Just this topic? (laughs) I am steamed up about a lot of topics, about how we delude ourselves out of power. And we've got a great show coming up next week about health care. Like, why is it such a radical idea that we should have national health care? Like, everybody else has it. But see, there's just so much delusion in our nation. And it is being exemplified by none other than uh, the presidential primary, right? Uh, so much delusion. So I'm going to be quiet, though, because, uh, you know, I'll have plenty of time to be steamed up after the news. So take it away, James. Okay, as if you're not already steamed up enough, (laughs) perhaps this will even help you further along in that direction. Oh, yeah. Okay, while we've been preoccupied with our presidential primaries, climate change continues along with violence against women. And we'll be highlighting these topics in today's news. Can I say something about that? (laughs) Yes, go ahead. Well, I just want to say, you know, I am not saying that Donald Trump does not make racist remarks and that, that the stuff about Mexicans is horrendous yeah, and, and the, the stuff about the judge. But everybody is like, oh, my God, we can't have a nominee who is going to attack the judiciary system. No, excuse me. We can't have a nominee who doesn't know that there's climate change. You know, climate change is what's going to ruin the entire planet. But we get all fixated on, oh, that wasn't nice. And that's really showing what a pig he is. And I mean, again, I'm not <laughs> saying that that isn't showing what a pig he is. But where is our sense of proportion? I mean, can we ever wake up? Anyway, please carry on. Well, we're trying to wake people up as best we can. We are. So here's a good story reported by the CNN on June the 8th. Norway becomes the first country to ban deforestation. You heard me, banned it. Norway has become the first country to ban the clear-cutting of trees, a huge step toward curbing global deforestation. At the rate we're going, the world's rainforests could completely vanish in 100 years. 
In their pledge last week, Norwegian lawmakers also committed to find a way to source essential products such as palm oil, soy, beef, and timber so that they leave little or no impact on the ecosystems. According to the United Nations, the production of palm oil, soy, beef, and wood products contributed to almost half of total tropical deforestation. When forests are cleared and set in flames, the carbon in the trees is released as carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas contributing to climate change. And Actually, by the way, we now discovered yeah. that that's probably not true. It's probably methane. But, yes. Uh, yes. That, that, that's it. That and methane. Yes. And, and by the way, forests are a huge source of oxygen for our whole planet. Oh, we don't need that, do we? No. Okay. <laughs> in 2008, Norway also showed its commitment to a cleaner environment, giving Brazil $1 billion to help fight deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. This has slashed deforestation by 75% in seven years. Norway is also in the process of restricting the sale of gas-powered cars by 2025. I have to tell you this story with a little pride since I'm mostly Norwegian descent. Yay, James. But I can't take any credit for it, but nonetheless. <laughs> on the other hand, the Washington Post reported on June the 7th that the Arctic sea ice hit a stunning new low in May. The 2016 race downward in Arctic sea ice continue, continued in May with a dramatic new record. The Arctic Ocean this May has more than three Californias less sea ice cover than it did during an average May between 1981 and 2010. This matters because 2016 could be marching toward a new record for the lowest amount of ice ever observed on top of the world, said Mark Serez, who directs the National Snow and Ice Data Center, NSIDC. It's way below the previous record, very far below it. All of this has happened during a year that itself is blowing all old records for warmer temperatures average across the globe. The warming of the Arctic is expected to continually feed upon itself. In other words, less sea ice, a darker ocean surface exposed to space, more heat absorbed, less sea ice, and so on. How can a major political party in the U.S. keep denying climate change? In the meantime, violence against women continues. You may have read the latest horrible story of a teenage Pakistani girl being burned alive by her mother and brother for eloping with a guy they didn't approve of, but she happened to be in love with. Well, this story focuses on violence against women on a different continent. The Huffington Post reported on June the 3rd that Brazil and Argentina are uniting in protest against a culture of sexual violence. Demonstrators in neighboring Latin American countries took to the streets last Friday in protest against gender violence following horrific recent attacks on young girls. Two different protests but the same cause, violence against women in macho Latin America. These rallies highlight both the persistence of gender violence and a growing campaign to stop it. The protests have been sparked by separate outrages. The alleged gang rape by more than 30 men of a 16-year-old girl in Rio de Janeiro last week, and the murder of a pregnant 14-year-old girl in Argentina last week. Two of the men in the gang rape posted images of the assault and its aftermath on social media networks. The Brazilian girl's family said that she was gang raped as a punishment because her boyfriend suspected she had cheated on him. Hey, that's enough. I mean, that's reason enough, don't you think? 
Oh my God! I mean, after she, he possessed her, right? She had yeah. no uh, will of her own. In an interview with local media, she said the policeman who initially heard her testimony was hostile and critical. Other officers posted mocking comments and pictures on their Facebook and Instagram pages. But amid a growing outcry at her treatment, the authorities have promised action. A female officer, Christiana Bento, has been put in charge of the investigation. Several of the alleged perpetrators have been arrested. Michael Temmer, the acting president of Extra, which is the newspaper that first broke the news, said he will establish a special task force in the federal police to handle cases of violence against women. Studies suggest between 7.5% and 10% of all Brazilian women report cases of sexual violence. While gender violence occurs worldwide, the problem has come to the fore in several countries in Latin America through the work of prominent feminist groups. Andrea Mochado, who organized a protest on Wednesday in the center of Rio, commented, I think we have two options. We can either fear or fight. I'm happy to see that the great majority chose to fight. Yay. Yay. Come together. In more encouraging news from MSN.com, on May the 28th, it reports that India is fitting panic buttons, closed-circuit cameras, and vehicle tracking systems on buses across the country in response to a deadly 2012 gang rape in New Delhi that triggered global condemnation and widespread protests in the country. Sounds like uh, the Latin American countries could use this, too. This measure was passed by Parliament to prevent sexual violence and has become law. According to the National Crime Records Bureau, a total of 32,077 cases of rape, on average more than one per hour, were reported in India last year, 2015. Seho Singh of the anti-poverty group Action India Action Aid India said the gang rape incident was a watershed moment in Indian society with more women now openly talking about sexual harassment and violence. The need for the empowerment of women is hitting the news again in a different way. Here's some news from unwomen.org, dated May 18th. UN Women debuts We Are Here documentary series. UN Women Regional Office for Arab States announced today the debut and release of a six-part documentary series under the title of We Are Here highlighting the political, social, peace-building, and conflict resolution work of women living in challenging environments across the Arab states region. With conflicts and humanitarian crises raging through the region, women often find themselves at the center of the fray, but not in the decision-making circles. The six documentaries feature women activists in the five conflict-ridden countries of the Arab states region of Iraq, Libya, Palestine, Syria, and Yemen. And to complete our news for this week, while President Obama has just endorsed Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders' work around income inequality is far from over. This story appeared in U.S. News and World Report on May the 31st. It's an opinion analysis story called, Shareholders Can't Stop Growing Inequality, But Maybe the Rest of Us Can. Back in the middle of the 20th century, only a handful of major U.S. corporations paid their power suits, meaning their big executives, more than 25 times than what their average employees received. Last year, CEOs in the United States averaged 335 times what their workers earned. Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein, a billionaire, 
just received a bonus of $53.4 million on top of his annual salary of $24 million. We're now witnessing growing worldwide shareholder angst over executive pay excess. The corporations insist that executive pay levels are an internal matter and the public should keep its hands off. But last summer, the federal agency with watchdog responsibility over Wall Street finally promulgated new regulations that require corporations to annually disclose the ratio between the pay of their top execs and the most, and most typical workers. The first of these disclosures will start appearing early in 2018. These disclosures just may open the door to all sorts of innovative new reforms. We could, for instance, deny lucrative government contracts to companies that pay their CEOs more than 25 or 50 times what they pay their workers. Beth? Well, so many interesting things that you read, and this, of course, is just a smattering of the news. Uh, every week we do the news of the Inner Revolution. The Inner Revolution, for those of you who have never heard our show before, is about a growing consciousness of oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And, you know, I was thinking about the whole middle thing as we were listening. I mean, how many of us have called ourselves middle class? And how many of us really have income in between, in the middle, between the guy who's the billionaire or the guy whose annual salary and bonuses is like $75 million? (laughs) You know what I mean? Are, Are we really in the middle? Now, it's just ridiculous, but there's something about that that I really want to share. We have gotten this idea that there's something wrong with taking a strong stand for something. Like somehow or other that you're a maniac if you actually believe that we shouldn't have homeless people or that children should have nutritious lunches (laughs) available to them no matter what their income level or that we shouldn't have lead in the pipes or that uh, we should have, uh, you know, health care for everybody. These are not radical ideas. These are common sense ideas, but we have been somehow sold a bill of goods that you can't take a strong stand on something. I mean, it's, you can't say that women should be given equal pay for equal work (laughs) or that, you know, people should use a bathroom according to their, you know, their identity. That's, that's not temperate. It's not moderate to say these things. Somehow this idea about being in the middle and being moderate is all wrapped up in this culture that we have, which says that real passion about real injustice is somehow crazy. You know, we have this wild-eyed socialist presidential candidate who's just talking common sense, who's just talking about extending the New Deal which, you know, we passed in the 1930s, as far as I remember. So, I don't know. It's fascinating. So, I just wanted to put that spin on this whole conversation that we're going to have about the middle, that somehow or other we think that this is really the place to be. And so, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce again our guests, Chris Reese. And Lynn Hillocks. Okay, so Chris, why don't you start? Why don't we start with you with telling, telling us about what's so middle about you, and 
Why did you want to be in the middle to start with? Or what you thought was the middle? Sure. Um, well, what's so, what did I think was the middle? Um, I thought middle class was living in a good neighborhood, maybe not the best neighborhood, but in a good neighborhood, um, definitely owning a home, having cars in the garage, um, being able to take vacations, you know, um, being able to afford to send your kids to college, um, uh, you know, having money to go out to eat when you wanted to, um, you know, having disposable income to do things that you wanted to do. Like if your family was into skiing, you could afford it. Or if your, you know, if your family had other hobbies, you could, you could do it. So now you that- see, I want to say something about that right off the bat, because I think that in some of the background material that was prepared for the show, it said that middle class, and by the way, I want to come, I'm going to tell you what the actual definition of middle class historically is, and you may l- know this, but, or you may laugh, but what you're talking about, of course, is about income. It has right. nothing to do with class, first of all. Secondly, it isn't middle. And thirdly, and uh, you know, in this, in this material that I read, it said that a middle class is like you should be able to pay your bills and get your needs met. Why should that be considered middle class? Why shouldn't that be considered normal for human beings? That people, everybody needs to be able to pay their bills. All, everybody needs to be able to send their kids to college. I seem to be upset. Everybody needs to be able to have adequate health care, right? But we're right, saying, I, no, 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 we have to, and I know it's in the mind. I totally understand. Right. See, this is an assumption that we make, that this is a status in society that we aspire to or we have, and that, of course, there's people who are lower class, right? Forget about the upper class, but that the lower class people don't have that, and we're all fighting to be in the middle class rather than making this a standard for humanity. Right, right. It, it is really interesting when you look at, like, how do you, the economists define middle class, and they look at data, you know, and they'll look at, like, what's the average or median or high-low salaries from 20 years ago compared to now and how they changed. Um, so they're just looking at dollars, but but what you just said is talking about a state of mind, and... There's another little variable when you're looking at, quote-unquote, who's considered middle class. Like if you are a well-paid, highly skilled laborer um, versus a teacher, a well-paid, highly skilled laborer might make more money. But because the teaching profession is considered to be white-collar and have advanced educational requirements, it's considered quote-unquote, middle class or upper middle class. So so depending upon who you talk to, this idea of are you in the middle class, do you feel like you're middle in the class, or how do you define middle class, it changes. Yes, and there is a purpose to that, by the way. So I'm going to, before we bring in Lynn, and I'm going to ask her the same question of, you know, what does she consider herself and, you know, did she want to be? Um, I'd like to say that historically... You know, we had the aristocracy, we're, we're coming out of the Middle Ages, right, in the feudal system, and we have the lords, and we have the serfs, and we have the kings, right? And then all of a sudden, like, we started having the industrialists, and 
And they became the bourgeoisie, as they called them in French. And that was a different class. That was the middle class. They were not the aristocrats. They weren't the peasants. They actually owned the means of production. And they had a different status in society. And then you had the petty bourgeoisie. You know, you'll have the little shopkeepers and all of that. And so this was coming out of a society where those, you know, the, 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 the way the society was structured, the people who were on top were on top because the king gave them some land. <laughs> I gave him a title and there you are, right? So that was kind of the way it was. It was how, what your relationship was to the means of production really said what class you were in. And everybody, all the rest of us were in the working class. Right. Whereas as the as it developed, of course, as we started having industry, there were workers and um, rather than peasants so or serfs so or slaves, for that matter. OK, so we those of us who were working for the people who owned the means of production were the workers. Well, I don't know what kind of fancy title give you give yourself. You're still working for the man. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're a worker. And if you're a teacher, you're working for the government. You know, if so, but I agree this thing, white collar, blue collar, is a way to divide people so that we don't even notice that we're actually all in the same class, except for a few of us <laughs> who actually own stuff. And then there's those of us who don't have jobs, who are the unemployed, and, you know, we're at the bottom of the barrel because... You know, we we don't we don't even have the status of worker, right? So anyway, I just wanted to throw in that little bit of history, uh, just to throw a little bit more confusion into this uh, into this. Okay, so Lynn, what about you? Do you consider yourself middle class, and and uh, did you want to be? Well, I never really thought about middle class as I was growing up. I thought we were part of the intellectual class. Whoa, yes, that's another one. Because my parents were teachers. Right. But we never had enough money. Right. And I think that I I kind of stayed stuck just in that thought for a very long time. And, um, And, of course, I never aspired to be in the middle class. I wanted to be in the upper class. Right My dream on. was to marry a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> right. and just skip right up to the heights. <laughs> and, um, and now I, I don't even know what I am. I, I, don't, uh, I do consider myself part of the middle class. I, I did some research on my own in preparation for this show, and I did a few interviews around my office asking people oh, cool. if they thought they were middle class. And it was very fascinating. People making the same amount of money, one person would say they're definitely middle class, and the other person would say, no, I'm poor. Oh, that's fascinating. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it's many, very fascinating. It, it depends on how many people that you're supporting on that salary, too. True. That's true. But I think Lynn is, 
is really making a good point, I mean, which you were making too earlier, of how subjective this is and mm-hmm. how muddied the waters really are. Like yeah. Lynn is saying, okay, we were the intellectual class, which is a step higher. I mean, that makes you above everybody. Uh, you know, I remember having that thought too. I'm glad you brought that up. That somehow the intellectuals were above the wealthy, were above the 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 owners of industry, above you know everybody. You know, because yeah. we were we were just we were just outside the system altogether. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? My dad was in sales, and I totally would have looked at Lynn's family as like being above us because they were intellectual. Uh-huh. I wouldn't, you know, I mean, because Lynn and I know each other, you know, I know our, my family had more disposable income than she did at different times, but totally I would have felt, I would have definitely looked up to and held in a very high esteem someone who was a professor level, you know, teacher. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And let me add another little squiggle to the salesman thing. Um you know, I grew up when I started to realize that a salesman, my father was an independent contractor, right? He went out, he sold, he was not a salaried employee. So in some ways, you would say, well, he was above worker. But my father didn't make as much money as the average worker because <laughs> he, he wasn't a very successful salesman. And it was a very low-level job, really. You know, he just he carried his samples around from one hardware store to another and tried to get them to buy coffee mugs from him. You know, I mean, what do you call that? Middle class? You know, is that, you know, on the level of the guy who owns, you know, Walmart or even a guy who, who, who owns the store that my father was trying to sell to? And so look how confusing that is. So I walk, grew up with a sort of embarrassed feeling that somebody was going to think we were middle class when we were actually dirt poor. But poverty, <laughs> class, Right. Is it, is it about poverty or is it about your relationship to work? What is your relationship to your work? You know, are you working for somebody? Then you're a worker. What horrified me, Chris, uh, and this may come as absolutely no surprise to Lynn, um, when I did go off to school myself and I met the professors, I saw the songs and dances that they went through, I saw how political it was, they're workers, they're workers. They're kissing up to the chairman or to this or to that. They don't have any power. They can be fired. They can be hired. And they are just sleazeball workers like the rest of us, with a few exceptions. I mean, anybody who has integrity and really does what they believe in is an exception in my mind. I'd like to add something here, too. Uh, my father was a blue-collar worker. Yeah, and uh, I pushed against that with all my might to become a white collar person to to not be like that, and and, and it really warped me significantly because I wound up majoring in accounting for which I was ill suited. Then I went to law school and became a lawyer for which I was ill suited, all because I really had to get to that status of not mm-hmm. being one of those people, one of those workers. That is so true and such an important point. So now let's talk about um, middle management, another illusion that we're about to, I hope, (laughs) to smash. So I think uh, two of you would be considered uh, middle management. 
Well, sometimes I think I'm I'm at lower middle management, but yes, I'm in there. Yeah, well, whatever level of middle management. Oh, yeah, see, in our society, we no longer have class, which has to do with what you do. We have the middle, 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 the lower, middle, the upper, lower, middle, the middle, <laughs> upper. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, we certainly do. Okay, so take it away. So you are in middle management. And are you really in the middle in terms of power? Do you, are you, you know, how, what is your power at your company? Well, I, I do feel powerless. I feel caught between the um, expectations of upper management and the goals of upper management and the um, very independent will of the union employees. Yeah. And, um, and it's stressful. Yeah, I love where I work. But it, um, I don't feel like I have very much power at all. And did you think that you would when you got a middle management role? You're some kind of a supervisor. I mean, you can say as yeah. much or as little about your job as you wish to divulge. Um, you know, what field you're in or what your rank is. And, uh, but, you know, did you actually think that you were going to get some power when you got the job? Well, I, I, I don't think, I think I would, when I got the job, I think, I believe I was going to have a lot of hard work ahead of me. Yes. But I do believe that somewhere in between then and a few months ago, I believed that I had power mm. and I tried to exert that power and it only caused me pain. Mm. I am just lately coming to realize that. I just have a job. I'm just on the same level as my workers. Yeah. You know, see, I say my workers. I heard that. But they are the workers, just like I am. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's hard to break the illusion of power. Yeah, well, I think people work real hard in order to get these positions, not only because they get, you know, somewhat more money, than the people who are lower than them in their own company, maybe, usually, sometimes, <laughs> mm-hmm. depending on the way the compensation is done. Mm-hmm. But it also is like so ego as like, oh, well, I'm, you know, a senior vice president or I'm a supervisor of such and such. And it's like we trade, we trade off our power as workers for that illusion. We do. I, I do work. I work for the largest healthcare company in Southern California. And it is actually bringing in leadership development, which is trying to break down the hierarchy mm-hmm. and have us uh, manage from a servant mentality. And I really appreciate that. It's a very hard nut to crack, especially when you have doctors involved who are kind of raised on ego. Yeah, But I do think that there is a turn in some companies away from that. I love that, and I'm so happy for that. And that's, again, instead of thinking about things as, here's the hierarchy, you know, where do you fit in it? Why don't we start looking at the needs? And that's what I was talking about earlier about middle income. Why do we think that having enough money to meet or pay our bills, which was actually in one of the things that, <laughs> that you research is that how people define middle class. 
my God, why shouldn't everybody have that? And mm-hmm. why shouldn't everybody have a say in the workplace? And if you're in healthcare, you know, maybe the patients should have something to say too. And yeah, uh, yeah. what about you, Chris? What about um, your sense of power? Where are you in the totem pole? You know, I definitely am in middle management, and I'm I am in a position to make decisions, and I'm also in a position where I need to, um, you know, execute on decisions made above me that I had no say in. Yeah, and. Um, one of the interesting things that I found when I was doing research for the show is that people who are in middle management, like Lynn and I are, are statistically more likely to have stress and anxiety and depression because, you know, we're not, we're not the C-suite or the owners who get to make the decisions that the rest of us have to implement. So we often feel like an inherent stress because there are things we have to like make happen and train people on and, you know, push, nudge, cajole people to do that weren't necessarily our idea. Um, And because we're in middle management, we're supposed to implement these ideas. So I I would say I feel that pretty acutely. And um, I don't think it's specific to the company I work for. I'm in the financial services industry. And... um, I'm in my mid-50s, so I've worked for, you know, different companies. And I would say that I wish that there was what Lynn was just describing, a move in our industry towards looking at the people in the service first, you know, and um, collaboration. Yeah. Um, There's such a drive for profit. And in the hierarchy, you know, there's just such a drive for profit and – a position that has a certain veneer on it, that's a role, you know? Yeah. And I, like, I, I was just at a conference earlier this week, and I was, there were a couple thousand people there, and I was at a conference two weeks ago, you know, and there were a couple thousand people there, a different, a different kind of conference. And it's so weird, because you kind of look around, and everyone's dressed the same. And it's, mo- <laughs> it's, it's mostly men. It's, there, there aren't very many women. And, like, we joke, in my industry, like, it's a navy blazer and flan, I mean, and um, khaki pants. And I kind of wonder, like, you know, if we were to all let ourselves just be people and we said, okay, we've got customers who have needs, everyone's got to make enough money to pay the bills, and it'd be nice if everyone had a little bit extra left over to have a little fun with, and make sure we all have health insurance and we have enough money to buy organic food and we can have counseling when we need it, you know, like, if that yeah. was our if that was our baseline, and then we said, okay, you know, the owners do take all the financial risk, the owners my husband and I owned a small business and we ended up going bankrupt. So I, I do understand that the owners take more risk that the team isn't taking. Um, but if our, if our baseline was like humanity and how we feel about like, you know, what's a good life. I would love to see everyone I know be able to have decent health insurance. That would make me happy. I would love it if everyone could afford organic food. Like if that was our conversation and then we said, and we have people who need, I happen to be in the insurance industry. We have people who need insurance. How do we make it happen for them? Yeah. You know, that's what I wish. And so I, you know, I, I feel like a lot of my stress is 
ego-based because I crave more power always than I have. And that's not, you know, that's not my boss's fault that I, that I like developed that attitude. Um, I rail against discrimination in the workplace and I see women kept at bay and minorities and it drives me insane. And, um, and I feel frustrated frequently when I have to implement decisions that I really didn't get to have a say in. Or that you don't agree with. Yeah, I mean, or that it's I don't okay agree with. if you don't have a say in something and it's good. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, and I see this with with people on teams all the time. And I don't know if Lynn sees this too. Sometimes just giving people an opportunity to have some input. Well, first of all, you can get a better outcome. But secondly, people just calm down when they get to hear what the rationale is. Yeah. And at first glance, I may say, this doesn't make any sense to me, but I don't know what the whole rationale was for doing it. Mm-hmm. So I'm making a judgment based on the lack of information. Um, and it, you know, it ties into what you were saying earlier, Beth. You, know, you have that, whether it's like you've got the surf or the worker bee, you know, people who just are kind of dictated what to do. You're a worker. I mean, I, I'm a high-paid worker. I get paid well and... Um, you know, I'm not complaining about my pay at all, but I'm a worker. And if my company says, you know, you have to go somewhere tomorrow and you've got to be gone for a few days, you know, I have to go. I don't, I can't say no, <laughs> Right. you know, and, and there aren't unions who say, no, you know, Chris should only have to travel three nights a month, you know, <laughs> so. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, that, I think you're bringing us back to. Can we organize society in a way where people come together to really solve problems and to create yeah. the wealth that we all need in order to live versus creating a society which is based on hierarchy whose purpose is to keep some people down so other people can climb? I mean, it's like the whole purpose of it. It doesn't make any sense. I want to say a couple of things that were that triggered as you were talking, Chris. One is I want to give you a little anecdote. When I, I worked in the typing pool of uh, Ohio Bell, which is the phone company, uh, when, before the phone company started getting broken up and getting back together and doing all that stuff. And um, in the typing pool, we had a supervisor. And she sat there and she looked at everything we typed. Now, you know, there was a time then you didn't have computers. We had electric typewriters. In fact, when I first started working, you had manual typewriters with seven carbons. And every time you made a mistake, you had to erase the seven carbons and you try to make it look perfect, right? So uh, what we did now, we had by that time, it was in the 70s, we had electric typewriters. So you type something and it was a memo from one of the engineers to the other. And it was going like across the room from one desk to another. <laughs> now, wait, wait, you, you're, gonna, you're not going to believe this. This is truth. This is truth. If you could see the erasure, if you made a mistake, because they didn't self-correct those typewriters, right? If you could see that there was a mistake, you had to redo it. I believe it. I Mm -hmm. believe it. And it was so stupid. I couldn't believe, first of all, none of them, none of these memos was written by anyone who was literate. And I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that their, their grammar, their English was terrible. But what did we worry about was whether there was an erasure on the page. So we had to type over and over and over. And the supervisor's job was to sit there with her pencil 
and tapping on the on the eraser at the end of her pencil, and then point at if she could see the the erasure, it went back to you. That's what she did all day. I thought, holy schmagoli. <laughs> what a wasted life. <laughs> and I have to say that I felt like I was wasting my life retyping these stupid memos that, I mean, it should have been a memo. Uh, thank God now we have email and you can erase. But, I mean, it, that's, this is how stupid things, but it's all ego and stratification. I mean, there was, a, there was a method to this madness, this looking perfect and having people there as the enforcers. Or I had a job where the controller of the company, I worked over a factory, would walk around to make sure that none of us stayed in the bathroom longer than 10 minutes. <laughs> mm, wow. Were those middle management people, Beth? Those were middle management people. <laughs> this, is, this is what I saw of middle management. I mean, it, it was just insane. And it was so antithetical to the way we should really be organizing ourselves and our work. And these poor people, they did it. I don't blame them. I think you have some statistics there, Chris, about the amount of alcoholism in middle management. Is like way out there, isn't it? Do you do you have that? Yeah, I, I yeah. Let me just uh, you know, it's interesting. As women rise in their careers, they be they're more likely to become alcoholic. And when <laughs> women hit middle class, I mean, um, middle management, white collar jobs, the statistics for them to become alcoholic are off the charts. Isn't that something? Now I don't know whether yeah. it's because all the poor people are drug addicts, but I I don't know what that means. But I thought that was fascinating. Well, there's such a sense of alienation yeah. that you feel when you're yeah. sitting there with four women typing memos to go from one desk to another, and you know this is your career. And uh, we all looked at her as though she was useless, and she felt useless too. And and being the enforcer, it's like. You were saying is like these other, like the controller who was the enforcer to make sure that we didn't stay too long in the bathroom. You know, this was a guy, by the way. Uh, he had to stand outside the ladies' room because <laughs> he couldn't go in and tell us to come out. So, um, you know, these kind of, you know, you look at that, it's pure power. It's pure power. And the, the woman who supervised us at this, this factory job, it was a paper bag factory, and I was in the office. If you did not, if the day ended at 5, you had to be working until 5. You couldn't, like, get up and go to the bathroom, put your coat on so you could leave when the bell rang. No. You had to wait till the bell rang. Then you would, could go to the bathroom and put your coat on. And it was this, I mean, it's just this sense of, enforcement of policing that people were policed they were not being evaluated by how much work they produced or how well they produced it or how much contribution they made to the society and so so many of our middle middle management people when you really look at it deep deeply are enforcers for the owners and the second thing that I want to say about that, and, you know, someone might want to comment on that, but the second thing I want to say is, you know, when you are uh, you know, own a little mom-and-pop store or, you know, you own your own hardware store, you're a franchiser, you are really a whole class of your own, of what the middle class used to be, the petty bourgeoisie, that you're taking all the risks 
and you are put in that position of having to uh, I t- totally appreciate the position of those people and, you know, having to wring as much out of their workers as possible. But then you look at the big people. Where is all the money going? It's increasingly, increasingly, increasingly going to the top. It's not going to the guy who owns the hardware store on the corner. Right. Well, that, you know, that, that's what the statistics show that um, since the quote-unquote, you know, Great Recession um, that started earlier this century that people in the middle class, if you want to measure it by money, yes. that that has shrunk and that people in the upper class, that that percentage wise, more money is going to them. So um, and, and they they've are not done personally. better. They are not personally taking the risks that you did when you and your husband right, the right, store. Right. And these people who own stocks and they are, they're not doing anything productive. I mean, they're not even the captains of industry. And these people, they hire, uh, you know, senior executives who are glorified workers. Oh, very often overpaid workers, I have to say. (laughs) But, I mean, I have seen that in, you know, big corporations, that the big illusion that these people walk around with, like thinking that they're somebody but the experience that they have is they can be wiped out in a minute. And the big difference is as you get higher and higher, you get severance pay, you have golden parachutes, you know, you have to fire somebody who's bankrupted the company and you have to give them a $52 million severance package, you know, for having destroyed the company. And one of the things that is so painful about all of this is the, this alienation of the people who are running the company and the people, people who are actually ex- working for the company or the people who are buying the products of the company. And all of that, it's not even like people are running these corporations anymore. It's like the profit is running these corporations. There, it's, it's, uh, it's, so, it's so alienated. It's so uh, separate from the experience. I mean, I, I saw big vice presidents shaking in their boots because they thought that they were going to be fired by the board. You know, and there was a there was a article in Time magazine, and it was the um, the front cover. This is like 2009, and it showed a man that was like middle aged in a business suit, lying flat on his belly with his arms spread out and his legs spread out, with a harpoon through his back. Yeah, and it and it said endangered species, and the whole article was about how middle level management in most of these positions were held by men during this past recession. The positions were just cut. And it forced workers to do more work, you know, and processes kind of fell apart. Um, Things unraveled, um, you know, because what I see, at least in the the companies that I've worked for, is that the middle-level manager is the enforcer, but the middle-level manager is also kind of like the oil that keeps the wheels spinning, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, because the, the things that fall outside of the standard operating procedure end up on their, you know, in front of them, or they have to make tough decisions that like the line people can't make. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's just a lot of stuff that flows up that lands in front of me that is like, uh, where there's some judgment all that has to be made. And so I get involved in that. And I see that with a, with a lot of 
people in middle-level management at my company. That's kind of how it works out. But what I see that that feeds the alienation that you're talking about, Beth, is that inherent in that structure, there's a hierarchy. There is, you know, Sally who can only make decisions up to this level. And then there's, you know, Chris or Lynn or Frank who can make decisions above that level. And frequently the way it plays out creates, at least what I've seen, is that it creates more of like, there's like an authority figure and like, a child figure and the authority figure is making the decisions and making these tough calls and telling the child figure what to do. And so we're not in a model of cooperation and collaboration and the middle level managers, you know, frequently like the ego tells us, you've got to prove your worth, you know, don't give up any of your authority. Don't ask them for their opinions. You know, don't, don't encourage an environment of collaboration because your whole value is tied up in proving that those senior execs need you to delegate and execute yeah. on their plans. Yeah, so, great point. So great you're just point. like stuck in this role. And, you know, I'm lucky. I'm, I feel like I'm very lucky because at our company, I have pushed out and become more collaborative with people that report to me and other people that are like my peers and such. And it's encouraged. It's allowed. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not disencouraged, right? It's allowed. But I'm, I don't know what Lynn runs into. She works for a much larger organization with with different structure than I have. Like, well, we have a a partnership with the unions here called the Labor Management Partnership, and each department has to have that. Um, it's called a unit based team, and we really do have a lot of um, choice. Of, we, we give the employees a lot of choice about how they want to do something. I mean, if we, we are told we have to improve a certain thing, but we can take it to our unit-based team and say, okay, how do you want to implement this? And it does help them be much more engaged mm-hmm. and um, results in a workflow that they're much happier with and that works better for them. So I feel very lucky to be in a company that values that. Yeah. And um, so I don't feel like I have to be quite the enforcer. There are plenty of rules I have to enforce. Cover up your tattoo. Don't wear a hoodie. You can only wear a T-shirt <laughs> on Friday. Your cleavage is showing. <laughs> I don't like that music you're playing. Get off your cell phone. But... Um, but we do value the voice of the um, of the employee, and we also have uh, the voice of the patient. We have a, a council that is um, consulted with on many decisions that are made in this organization. You know, this is great, and there and and I I believe that these are really important changes but they are all nibbling at the edge of the cheese. Yeah. If you I think look you're right. if you look at the way business is structured today, you do have the you know the small businesses that are still running the in a in a way in the same way, but they have to compete with the Home Depots, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they have to make it with that somebody else who has the economy of scale. And and within the company who really has the say, you know, is it the shareholders? Is it the chairman of the board? 
And, you, you know, you, what you see is businesses that are not even based on making the business more functional. Very often, the CEOs who are getting the most money are the ones that are doing the short-term stuff that makes the bottom line look better today and guts the company for tomorrow. So, oh yeah, we're that, all that's being critical, isn't yeah. it critical? So well, when you like, think about I, it, yes, go ahead, Chris. I, I just, you know, just just jumping to like now you're in the realm of publicly traded Fortune 500 companies. Like that's not where I work, and Lynn is not. That's not where right. Lynn works. But it, but in that world, it's so inhumane. And you know, when we look at how much money's gone offshore because of the advantageous tax laws yes. that, you know, big corporate money, wealthy individuals have been able to convince the politicians that they put in office to pass these laws to support them and their, you know, agendas. We have this vicious cycle because it starts by saying we have to prop up the, the price of the stock. And we have to prop up the price of the stock by improving our earnings. And we have to improve our earnings by pick one. You know, go offshore and don't pay taxes. Pick two, push the jobs offshore so that we can pay um, unregulated um, poor people in other countries to make the product instead of keeping it in the United States. You know, pick three, let's slash our middle managers and let's make our people work overtime and they don't really have a structure and they don't have people really to help take care of them. Pick four, fight the union, fight the union, fight the union. The unions have been pushed back over the past 20 years. And during that time, the middle class has has um, diminished. Exactly. So, so in all of this, in all of this, I mean, you know this, the compensation arrangements are tied to the price of the freaking stock. So everyone's compensation when you get to a certain level in management is tied to the price of the stock. So you become so inhumane. And, and I want to just add one more vari- variable yeah, to this. We've, got, we've really got to close. Picture how many people have pegged their retirement to the price of some company's stock. Right. Some of the the biggest investors in companies right now are are organizations like the teachers' unions. Right. Chris, I have to stop stop. you. It's It's a great point that you're making. I just want to wrap all of this up by saying, have we started to explode the myth of the middle? That in all of us are running around trying to fix the, you know, the edges of the cheese, but actually it's a big illusion. And we are separated from each other by ego. I'm white collar. I'm a professional. I'm a this. I'm a middle management. And, and we're not taking on the whole system. And that's what we need to do. And James, what are we talking about next week? Next week, are we sick of our dysfunctional healthcare system? What's the prescription? Let's ask Dr. Adam Gaffney of Physicians for National Health Insurance. Why do so many think national health insurance is a crazy radical idea? Today, over 2,500 physicians are calling for single-payer health care reform. They say despite the Affordable Care Act, there are still 30 million Americans with no health insurance and 39 million more whose insurance is not affordable. Every other developed nation has some form of national health insurance, yet the U.S. health spending is far higher than theirs. Single-payer national health reform would save nearly $500 billion annually on paperwork and administration, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we're going to look into this next week. What, is the, what, are, what are the questions like, what does the lack of a guaranteed health care cost us as individuals and as a society? Host Beth Green challenges us to rethink health care and interviews Dr. Adam Gaffney, 
who is advocating single-payer health care. If you can stand up to the insurance companies and establishment thinking, why can't we? Beth? Thanks so much. I hope we're beginning to break down some of the illusions. We believe in oneness, accountability, and mutual support. That is the inner revolution. We need to start realizing that we are one, whether it's the blacks versus the whites, or the whites versus the Hispanics, or the middle versus the bottom, or the bottom. You know, we're, we're, we are downright stupid. <laughs> you know, we don't even, we can't even see what's going on in our own world. Men against women, women against whatever. You know, we don't see that we're all losing and we're all being controlled and we're all fighting each other for crumbs. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about self-love, connection, feeling of value, of coming together. It shouldn't be this way. Join the inner revolution. Come back next week. Thank you to my wonderful guests. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.